I have a family to support. Hear me? I want to stay in Arizona. I want my new contract. But I like you. Yes, I like you, Jerry. My wife likes you. You're good to my wife. I will stay with you. That's, that's great. I'm very happy. Are you listening? Yes. That's what I'm going to do for you. God bless you, Jerry. But this is what you're going to do for me. You listen? Jerry? Yeah, what, what, what can I do for you, Rod? You just tell me what can I do for you. It's a very personal, very important thing. Hell, it's a family model. Are you ready, Jerry? I'm ready. I just want to make sure you're ready, brother. Here it is. Show me the money. Hello, I'm Derek Gottlieb. Welcome to the Point 10 Podcast. Rachel White is back today to talk with us about 1996's Jerry Maguire, starring Tom Cruise, Renee Zellweger, Cuba Gooding Jr., and Regina King, and featuring memorable work from Kelly Preston, Jay Moore, Bo Bridges, and Jerry O'Connell. Let's get to it. I really love that this, you know, just parenthetically, that on the days that we record these episodes, I get texts from you first thing in the morning <laughs> that are just like, here's some things to think about with respect to this thing. Or like, I mean, I feel like I feel like it's really hard to beat the Billy Madison one. And it will never, like, yes, it's never going to be yeah. possible to top its nudie magazine day. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. So um, I don't know. Maybe I should just, like, quit while I'm ahead. But I'll keep, I'll keep trying. Yeah. So... Uh, one of the things that prompted us to even start discussing the possibility of doing this movie, at least in my memory, is, you know, our mutual colleague Jack Schneider texting me at one point and be like, hey, I just watched Jerry Maguire and I think it holds up. OK. <laughs> All right. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I invited him to be here, by the way, today. But he had he had another podcast interview scheduled with somebody like Larry Cuban or something that he had to do. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't so, seem very important. I but know. Right? Whatever. So just a, a basic sort of uh, starting point. What's your relationship like to this movie? Yeah. Um, so I do like there is part of me that thinks it holds up. Um, which I was surprised by. Um, my relationship to this movie is I watched it. <laughs> this is, this is a theme. I watched it much too young. Um, sure. and like didn't appreciate, I was just like, this is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing entertaining about this movie at all. Um, interesting. That, that was literally my first impression. Um, but I can, I, I like actively remember my sister who's six years older than me, my oldest sister, like watching it all the time. And I'd be like, can we watch something else? Like, this is not, what's even happening? Um, I clearly didn't get the like, um, agent, like sure. what an agent, a sports agent was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved the, lines so like obviously there's you know the, the a few lines that are really popular i don't know if you remember that um there was aim so there was like what what was before aim um q, q something do you remember like the instant messaging thing sure 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 i re- like aol instant messenger is AIM. yes before yes. that was i i don't know like there was I something before Prodigy that that was like or, earlier it had a q in it 
Um, I don't know. Anyway, I think it was AIM, AOL Instant Messenger. Um, and I can remember that you could like associate sounds with like people coming and going, you know, sure, like there was sure. like the door yeah, sound, exactly. but you could like change it maybe. Mm-hmm. Or no, you know what? It was also like in, <laughs> I'm like pretending like people can see what I'm doing with my hands right now. Uh, <laughs> there's like a, you know, like the chat box with yeah. like, like you and I are chatting sure. and like yep. there's a chat box and then that you had like a, in the bottom left corner, you had like an icon or something like yeah. that. I don't remember, but there was like, it could, it could have sound associated with it. Mm-hmm. And it was like your, like mascot, like your personal okay. persona, your like song. an avatar. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay, there like an go. avatar. <laughs> <laughs> like how did that word not occur to you right away? <laughs> so anyway, you, I used to use the Jerry Maguire ones all the time. Like I would use the, like, um, show me the money one. Sure. Or what was the, there was another one that I like always use and I, I like thought I was cool. Oh yeah. Well, obviously. <laughs> because I, mean, I would use those sounds and people would be like, what is that from? I'm like, Jerry Maguire. Like, duh. have you seen it? <laughs> like you're just like, you're just basking in your, you know, sister who's six years older than you. Yeah. For our listeners, by the way, when, when Rachel is like, oh, I act like people can see what I'm doing with my hands. She was literally just describing a box <laughs> with her hands. <laughs> what was happening? So it, when, it was complex. <laughs> So when you thought when you when you were watching Jerry Maguire a lot with your older sister and you were like, why are we watching this? Was your would your sister try to justify it or would she just be like, shut up, Rachel? The latter. For sure. For sure. She'd be like, shut up. I'm trying to watch this Um, (laughs) or like, go away. Okay, Right. Like, go. go Yeah. No, there was no discussion about what what was actually happening. (laughs) So at what point in your life then did you start to feel a fondness for this beyond sort of aim coolness? (laughs) sound avatars yeah um you know i don't know i don't know that i ever like developed a fondness for it until i watched it last week oh that's really interesting yeah um i really like have developed an appreciation for it um i mean i watched it again like in high school i feel like a few times um but i do think it was one of those movies that i like probably didn't pay really close attention to interesting so yeah so as with so many movies on this show this came out like right in the middle of my high school years so like i in 1996 i would have been 17 i can't remember if this came out in the summer or whatever but like and you know as i was as we were texting about sort of offline i like i have a little bit of trepidation about talking about this movie or revisiting (laughs) it in general because it's part of for me this cameron crow trio of films with say Mm -hmm. anything on the earlier end and almost famous on the other end that are presenting a version of sort of what like how men are supposed to be let's say or how the like how men are supposed to be in this world that is that was deeply resonant with me at the time that I wanted to aspire to. This is way different from sort of like the action movie toxic masculinity yeah. tropes in which I can be like, I see that I am supposed to want to be like this, but A, that seems impossible. And it's possible for me to sort of acknowledge that like I'm what I'm watching is a, is somebody else's version of a masculine ideal that I that I can mm-hmm. sort of keep myself at critical distance from. But there was something in Cameron Crowe's sort of like Lloyd Dobler from Say Anything, Jerry Maguire from, you know, the eponymous movie and 
whatever William, whatever his name is in uh, Almost Famous, Almost. That, yeah. that I'm that I'm like, I'm like, I recognize myself in this figure and I want to be uh, like this person. And so, like, to come back to these movies, especially Jerry Maguire, which I had not seen probably since college, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, how problematic is this going to be that that I still <laughs> feel a sort of attachment? How like how odd is this uh, this kind of this? Cameron Crowe's sincerity that was really out of step with its time. It's different from sort of a reality bites and a singles focus on not selling out and authenticity and marginalization. This is a different kind of uh, thing. How odd is that going to feel? Um, So, yeah, that would like. What was it like when you watch it in high school and you watch like Jerry Maguire? Like, what was it about Jerry that you wanted to like emulate? I mean, the idea that like uh, of aligning one's conscience with one's professional life, uh, even though it's going to cost you your job and whatever, uh, of ultimately sort of like doing what it takes to uh, be the right kind of person for a Dorothy Boyd figure. Mm hmm. You know, I like it. Yeah. Taking sort of like big risks in order to. live the life that you feel is uh, meaningful for you, I think is, and like none of that seems problematic in retrospect, you know, like all of that was fully recognizable. The portrait of like the scene in which Cuba Gooding Jr. is like, how's your marriage, Jerry? When it's been what, three months? Like, or, or some like the, the portrait of their sort of, of, mm. of what, uh, Renee Zellweger's Dorothy and Tom Cruise's Jerry Maguire are like once they're married is really a very condensed fast forwarded and, and feels faker or feels fake to me now in a way that it mm-hmm. obviously would not have registered to me when I was in high school. But like aside from aside from that, aside from the way that like the job of a professional sports agent is configured aside from sort of like the the weird. I mean, the NFL was huge in 1996, but we're what like two or three collective bargaining agreements later down the road, there's so much more money. It's so much more media saturated. Now the, the portrayal of like the look at me, selfish black wide receiver looks really different now. Mm -hmm. And the fact that like everybody who like does any sort of writing or thinking about professional football or professional sports in general now also gets very nerdy into sort of contract details makes that whole part of the plot look real dumb. Like, yeah, yeah, a general manager is going to, like, suddenly, because someone has had this horrifically scary injury on the field, suddenly wants to invest more money in them for over, like, give them a more secure contract? That looks absurd. But, yeah, that's that's all that I will say about that for now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. The professional part of it, like, I do, I do think, like, the, you know, the white quarterback i don't know what was he a quarterback right like that everyone's chasing after Mm -hmm. and like the role that the families played in it like the the dads and the like i don't even really remember that storyline to be honest until i rewatched it i was like oh i totally forgot that this was part of this this movie um i'm like that that initial scene though is like such a a strong scene right where the is it it wasn't a football wasn't it like a hockey player yeah or something in the hospital yeah right yeah, that has had whatever eight concussions, and the the little son says "fuck you" to Jerry or yeah, something yeah, right, like exactly. that, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I it, it does seem ludicrous, but also like it it does 
seem like that could totally still happen today. <laughs> yeah. 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 That like the fact that like, yeah, that particular moment of growing a conscience as he, as he calls mm-hmm. it, that struck me as really realistic as a, as a sort of a standing possibility for sports agents in particular, but really anybody in any profession to suddenly be faced with the darkest possible side of your profession and be like, you know, I have to change my life. It, it is odd. I mean, one of the one of the weird things about the movie, coming back to rewatch it, is the particular thing that he does. I, I mean, I love the running gag about the difference between a memo and whatever a mission statement. Like that's that's funny, but the idea that like the most that Jerry Maguire's radical transformation involves so little change <laughs> it's like structurally <laughs> it's like we've got fewer clients smaller more care and i'm like but isn't the issue that you're essentially like the, the industry is essentially profiting off of the meat grinder that is professional sports and that like isn't that like what like closer relationships are going to make this in any way yeah no I, nothing really changed because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he obviously still needed a percent of any contract to like, right. Like to make a living. So he had this incentive to, I don't know. It just, it seemed like, (laughs) I mean, nothing changed. So this, this hockey player's son in the hospital is like, why isn't anybody looking out for my dad's? Why isn't anybody going to tell him to stop? Because Mm -hmm. he's had eight concussions. Jerry Maguire is a sports agent who's negotiating his contract, who's incentivized to try to extract the most value out of the team so that his percentage is higher. And and he's like and he gives the kids some like bullshit boilerplate line like while he's looking at his phone, which is a great sort of line about like nothing could stop your dad or blah, 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 blah. And then that's when the kid says, fuck you. Just. His answer to that is essentially not to walk away from the entire game. It's to basically be like, okay, well, we have to be taking a smaller percentage from fewer players. We ought to try to extract slightly less money from <laughs> from these players. But like nothing that he ends up doing uh, with Cuban Gooding Jr.'s character later in the movie is in any way structurally different from his relationship no, to the actor. No, it's That's not like he crazy. was like, you know, fuck this institution. Like this is not, this is not, ethical this is whatever moral whatever it is he's just like well let me just really intensely focus on one or two athletes and like his whole thing right is that like he it's about relationships right or whatever the quote is um and so like it's like oh well now if i just form these stronger relationships and treat these people like humans like it'll be better and like i feel like they tried to make like this this transformative experience like when um when could Gooding Jr.'s um, uh, character gets injured on the play. Like that, like that whole scene Holy where he's like moly. on the field, on the phone with the wife and being like, you just have to calm down. But I'm like, but you're like, you being on the field to like call the wife is not, not doing anything fundamentally different. And that, then I, like the whole scene where like, I'm, I'm still sitting here wondering if like, that was all an act. Like, was that all an act so that Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character like would become more famous? I don't think so. You really think he got knocked out? 
So, so the, that scene, um, I f- like, there's part of me that thinks that it was all made up. So there's a, there's one shot where we're seeing the doctor's face or the doctor's hands clapping. And we're supposed to mm-hmm. believe that it's from within Cuba Jr. <laughs> Cuba yeah. Gooding Rod Jr. Tidwell. <laughs> yes, Rod Tidwell. Thank you. From within Rod <laughs> Tidwell's helmet, like of him coming back to consciousness. So I think we're supposed to believe that he was, in fact, knocked out. The idea that like there'd be this. You know, they'd be like wheeling the bodyboard out onto the field. And then this character opens his eyes, does the most elaborate celebration dance that you can imagine, and is just fine after lying unconscious on the field. I mean, that's the thing that makes it look like it must be fake. Right. Because and then after that, obviously, he got he got all the attention, right? Like he got all the press yes, attention. Right. So my and like and then I'm like, oh, like, did they like do this and then you know jerry's on the phone trying to like uh, you know calm the wife and it's like did he kn- like was this all planned was this all planned and that like they were like oh if you just like pretend to get hurt and then come back out of it like you're gonna get all this media attention because you're gonna be like this you know um miracle story <laughs> i mean there's there's a there's a way of reading the movie that would support that there's like you know yeah they they have that whole uh conversation in the back in the bathroom, Jerry and Rod, uh, where Rod Tidwell is like, oh, you want me to dance? You want me to dance? And like, mm-hmm. we, we never see Jerry Maguire be like, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to catch a touchdown and you're going to pretend to be knocked out for like a long time. And then you're going to celebrate and that's going to make Arizona fans love you. And that's going to make the team give you a lot of money. That doesn't make sense. Like uh, <laughs> from like on an actual sort of contract level. But like, again, that's the part of the movie that really that really veers from reality, it seems to me. But yeah. that, like, also, if you're if you're if you are this movie, why would you hide that like that planning from I don't the know viewers? That's the I don't know. <laughs> it's a mystery. It is. It's a mystery. It Man, yeah the the portrayal of Rod Tidwell is. Uh, a product of an Arizona college. He wants to stay in Phoenix. His family is in Phoenix, but he also wants the Cardinals to give him uh, a salary, a contract offer that respects the work that he does. He wants like a long-term investment. What is it? He wants four, four years, 10 million, I think is the, is like what he wants that will set him up. That's, that's all he wants. And the Cardinals are not likely to give it to him. The thing that is weird about the contract negotiation is that, you know, they, whatever, it's it's weird to be looking back at this in 2023 when small guys who are really fast are, like, having a breakout moment in the NFL yeah. in general uh, that you wouldn't pay for that. I mean, what was Tyreek Hill's contract in Miami? It was, incre- it was like, six years, yeah. $53 million or something insane. So, like, whatever. Um so the idea that like they wouldn't want to pay this guy who's undersized, but the bigger issue that they keep giving Jerry Maguire is that he's like a me first guy. What's odd is that like the same narrative that's playing out publicly in the media, the the reasons being given publicly in the media and to Jerry Maguire, and that seems to exist in the locker room is all the same. Like his teammates are all like, oh, this who's this like me first kind of player. That strikes me as really false to reality in general. Like, it's a known thing that teams will try to sort of, like, leak stuff to the media to drive a player's value down or, like, get them to, like, 
accept an offer that is beneath them. But like everybody in the locker room knows that that is happening and that's not necessarily a real thing. So like, Mm -hmm. it's also funny to watch the Arizona Cardinals do this exact same thing with Kyler Murray right now. (laughs) It's just (laughs) hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, the whole contract thing. I don't, yeah, I just don't know. Like, I feel like maybe it's just like being in this moment where I feel like a Rod Tidwell is like what teams want. Yeah. Um, yeah. Someone who's like a little bit cocky, like, I mean, not, he's not the same, but like this, I am not like those types of players are not my favorite players. Um, you know, like a, a LeBron James is not, not my type of player, right? That's like super, um, I don't know, just like showy and whatnot. Um, but I feel like right now that's like what teams want. That's what, that's what drives up sales of jerseys. That's what, you know, like whatever. Um, what's the guy from the Tennessee Titans that does the, my, all my nephews are like obsessed with them. Um, he like dances. I don't know. They like love him. I don't even know who you're But he's like, he's like Rod Tidwell. Like, I can't think of his name. He's a receiver? Mm hmm. On the Titans? Mm hmm. I thought the Titans got rid of all their receivers. Is it A.J. Brown who went to the Eagles last year? It can't be, right? No, no, no. I'll figure it out. Just give me a second. (laughs) So, yeah, like, I mean, the other the other thing about like existing in the sports world. So here is where I think in real life, Cameron Crowe was a music writer for a while. So Almost Famous feels like a much better movie than this one, because Mm. here he's having to sort of like secondarily do his research from the outside about like what working with and within the NFL is like. And to his credit, he has like a ton of people show up in this movie as themselves. Former Lions coach Wayne Fonts is there. Herman Moore, the wide receiver is, is there. Mel Kiper shows up on like draft day or whatever. So it's, it's funny to watch, to like see all these people also that like mm-hmm. Mel Kiper's hair hasn't changed in 30 years. is amazing. <laughs> but like, but at the same time, Like the belief that we are committed to in this movie is that teams want to win is that teams want to win more than anything else, as opposed to owners want to extract the most money from their franchise that they possibly can and like increase the value of that franchise. So the idea that like you'd be concerned, like winning a Super Bowl is great if you can do it for like under a certain budget and if doing so will like increase the value of the franchise that that is wonderful but the idea that like people want to win for winning's sake alone and that you're willing to sort of sacrifice other considerations to that is just not how mm-hmm. professional sports owners work especially the worst owners on earth the NFL <laughs> owners so like yeah 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 it, uh Derek Henry that's Derek Henry okay All he's right. a running back not a wide receiver sure Sure. I was like, that was going to be my other guess. I just hadn't realized that he did really show his celebrations. I I don't know. My nephews uh, are always talking about him. I don't know. (laughs) Well, all right then. Uh, So, yeah, like the idea that like whatever. So that whole part of the plot, which is Mm -hmm. kind of a big part of the plot, like what teams are willing to offer Rod Tidwell, what Rod Tidwell's real value is, how this plays out in the media, in his conversations with Jerry and whatever is like that, that is in many ways. I mean, it's, it's simultaneously a major part of the plot and also in the background of exactly whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's like supposed to be the storyline, but like, 
you know, maybe, I don't know. I'm just like, I would rather know more about Dorothy and Jerry. Well, let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk about that a little bit. Dorothy's character. Okay. So the parts of this movie that have aged, the part of the movie that aged the worst for me is certainly the divorced women's group. Like, oh my God, yes. That's horrible. Also, it was like, so bad. Her old, also like, you know, in when I was 17, I was like, oh my God, her sister Laurel is like such a buzzkill. Why can't she see the good of Jerry? Now, everything she says to Dorothy is basically exactly right. <laughs> like, yes, uh, oh, is, Laurel is actually brilliant. This person is a walking red flag. I don't know why. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, I might have, like, if I were Laurel, tried to physically restrain Dorothy from getting to <laughs> Yeah, no, I I think so. I think Doris or Laurel aged well. Um, I think the the part that didn't age well about the divorced women's group is really their like style. (laughs) Like they really did up Uh, the '90s style with those women. I was like, wow, that haircut. (laughs) Like, I also just want like man to see like again in. At 17 in the 90s, I like fully like I didn't have a lot of experience being in like exclusively female spaces in which uh, women are talking to other women about their lives. And like it's not obviously as a man, I don't necessarily have I don't have experience being in exclusively female spaces that like where women are talking about their lives. But but I feel like I've heard about those spaces more from, you know, people who have been in there and the idea that like. This is what it looks like, like women coming together to sort of like talk about their lives and support each other. It's like Dorothy's fucking thing at the very end where she sort of joins that group. Her like relationship with Jerry Maguire is sort of falling apart. And she's like, I get it. Like men are the enemy. And I'm like, is that what fucking people talk about? Is that what it is? No. God damn it. It's like like the Bechdel (laughs) test only like with eight women this time all talking about yeah, I don't know. I don't know. As as a divorced woman, <laughs> I I never had this type of support group. Um, I feel like having like ten divorced women in the same room would be super overwhelming. Number one, uh-huh. like if you're gonna actually have like some sort of support group, like max three people. Sure. Um, because it, and like I feel like in the movie they just kept like the scene is always just them like. You, you can't actually hear what they're saying exactly. in any of the movie because they're just like cross talking the whole time. And I'm just like, what? This seems silly. Um, but it, it is, un- it just, it just paints divorced women as like complainers, right? Who are just like, you know, all men are terrible. And, and sure, we've all, <laughs> we've all had those <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> um, but I'm not going to go. I, I mean, Shit, it was like they were doing it on a twice a week or something yeah, like right? that. I don't know how frequent happening. this divorced women's yeah. group was, but it was frequent. And I feel like there's only, I mean, you can only talk about men, <laughs> like the problems you had with a man, like for so long. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, like, I just want to amplify one of the things that you said about how, like, you never hear any of the actual complaints and yet they're just framed as complainers. It's always crosstalk. I'm like, that's kind of the point. That's kind of like, that's the characterization there. Yeah. That, like, we're going they to. Also, yeah. I also feel like they characterize the women as some of them. It's not explicit, but some of them as lesbians. Oh, sure. Yeah. They're definitely queer coded for sure. Yeah. Uh, it, it, some of them. And like. Yeah. And, not all of them, but yeah. there's a couple that I can think of that I'm like, oh, they're trying to like. 
say that, it, I don't know. I mean, that's the, like, fuck. I mean, again, all of this plays into a certain kind of 90s fucking feminism that is, like, really... Or a portrait of 90s feminism that is really divorced from reality and really is about, like, feminism is about the hatred of men as opposed to the, something like like resistance to the patriarchy or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that's totally right. It's, yeah, um, feminism as, um, yeah, just, like, respect and, um, and going against these, like, social norms that have been created for us versus, like, this, like, fierce hate <laughs> for men, for, like, a man. Like, feminism is, like... A, a critique of like the institution of masculinity um, versus like here they're just bitching about their ex-husband. Yeah, exactly. And like in the most stereotypical ways, including like maybe I like women now or the other one being like, oh, the holidays and all the chocolate eating. That's like the one thing that you hear like yeah, an actual yeah. human being. The one, well, and like they, you know, they each have like a different, they each play a different like persona of what it looks like to be divorced right so like one is like crying and like remembering all the holidays and then the other one's just like fuck men (laughs) yes they're all terrible yeah um and it's just like okay first of all like as when you go through a divorce like you go through all of those stages Mm -hmm. (laughs) um like there's lots of different stages that you have you're not one or the other Mm -hmm. um and then Second, I don't know, like, I feel like for me, it has been more of a, like a reflect, like none of them, are, number one, none of them are reflecting on themselves. And yeah, for, right. for me, like there, it was a huge reflection on like, okay, like, who am I? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and how did, how did I contribute in any way in my behavior to like this marriage failing? Right. And none of them are self-reflective at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and then I think the third part was, um, what was I thinking about? Shoot. I don't know. Keep going. All right. And like, yeah, there, yes, that the whole idea, the whole idea that like, I mean, you think about like feminisms, the personal is political. It's like this movie just completely reverses that and, and is essentially like, no, it's all just person. It's just personal. The personal is just personal. And like politics is just an, an excuse to like magnify whatever your own personal grievances into something uh, structural, which is. Yeah. Which is ludicrous. It does make them look a little bit like, I think, and I think a lot of divorced women get this, like, persona, like, placed on them of, like, selfishness. Um, and, and I think probably at this time, I mean, divorce is very common now. It was more common then than 20 years before then, right? But it, it was probably less common than it is now. And I think you got the sense that they were all really, like, self-centered, um, and a little bit selfish. Um, which is something that I think a lot of women struggle with because not, not because they actually feel selfish. They know what they did was good for them, <laughs> but it's this like image that is sort of just slapped on them of, yeah, uh, self-centeredness. I mean, the other big part, like as long as we're talking about the portrayal of this uh, divorced women's group, the other major aspect of that portrayal is what happens when Jerry Maguire comes in with the sort of like iconic scene at the end. Like I'm looking for my wife. You're invited to believe 
that there's nothing, there's nothing more to sort of like satisfying the needs of this quasi-feminist divorced women's group than a good love story that all right. that is needed to redo. That's what everybody secretly wants is exactly monogamous heterosexual love. <laughs> that's, that's all that it could be. The, yeah. Like all of those women just want a man who would yeah, exactly. be looking for them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, oh, God. So, okay. I mean, you, you know me well enough. Could you Could you imagine me sitting in that living room? <laughs> I, I sort of can. It'd be like it'd be like like cupping a hand to your mouth, being like boo, boo. <laughs> I feel like I'd like bring my dog in and just like put headphones on and pet my dog. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing oh, to imagine. Yeah, I just like the whole time I was just like, wow, like are have divorced women changed? Like I don't I don't think so. <laughs> oh my god. It, but yeah, that portrayal was, was was not good. That like so so far we've shed on the uh like the the rep, the realism of sort of like what being a professional sports agent and how leagues work and contracts work and the portrayal of uh divorced women. And yet this movie held up surprisingly well is the, is the basic <laughs> thesis. Let's talk about some of that. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, why did it hold up well? Um, I think it's similar. If I can make like a sim- similar um, or draw a thread between like Mijo Black and this one. Yeah, absolutely. It's that like people get into relationships for different reasons. <laughs> and I think that's what held up is like you took, like it was very believable. Okay. That yeah. To, to me, sure. I, I mean the, the whole just like Dorothy going off with Jerry professionally because right. of this memo, right. like <laughs> that was a little extreme. Sure. Um, yeah. But like the actual love story of like Jerry and Dorothy, um, was was believable and I think and held up and I think similar to what you said early on like I wouldn't say Jerry was you know a bat like a like a macho you know mm-hmm. man like I think he he was sort of this like poster man sure <laughs> right for like you know like it's not all about you bro <laughs> like yeah, yeah um and and he was kind and whatever mm-hmm. um so I think that part held up for me. Um, it's just that like it, I do think there was like a sincerity that was very like charming, um, between the two of them. I think so. Like, I think so too. I think that's one of the things that Cameron Crowe does really the best as uh, a director. It certainly didn't say anything. And in this movie, like, like rewatching it again, like the port, the portrayal of Dorothy as a single mom, a 26 year old single mom, like, uh, trying to like raise this kid. Like I, I found her character and Jerry Maguire's characters separately to be implausible for a variety of reasons. Implausible is too strong to be like, uh, broadly or thinly drawn or both, uh, a little bit, but, the nature of the relationship together struck me as true to life and true to art, like within sort of a, a genre structure 
Dorothy is attracted probably more than is realistic to this sort of aspirational version of Jerry that like she gets to deliver all those lines at the beginning of the movie like, oh, the woman that snagged him, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and she leaves her job for this promise that does not seem to have any money in it. You're, she's supposed to demonstrate her practicality by being like, you have medical, right? As he has literally just quit his job and promised to start a new company, but hasn't actually done any, whatever. Um, yeah. And similarly, like, Jerry Maguire's own, like, yeah. His own his own sense of like, I would like to be better than I am, a better version mm-hmm. of myself than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, like my whole profession and my persona is about creating an image that I recognize as different from reality and essentially lying to people in order to get the thing that I want. Like the part of that that strikes me as realistic and the part that I think I am... I continue to be attracted to is the idea that you can be exactly that kind of shit bag and, uh, and still be sort of compelled to realize the version of yourself that you're pretending to be by being confronted with your responsibility to become that person. Like that's, that's like the, that's the night, that's the best possible version of romantic love in the world in general, I think, I think. And, uh, yeah, well, that's that Shakespeare dissertation again. I'm just gonna <laughs> <laughs> you know that you know that I can't talk about smart things like that, David. That's ridiculous. Eric. That's ridiculous. So, but like that, like what, like what Cameron Crowe does so well in this movie in particular is portraying. I mean, what Dorothy is is desperate to believe in this version of Jerry, both like in his actual person and as the possibility of like a romantic partner that she would want to be with and the difficulty that Jerry has believing in that version of himself and mm-hmm. watching him fail at that a lot. And yeah. before, I mean, we're, it's a comedy. So we're eventually left with the hope that this is how it's going to be from now on. But like, you know, that that's a realistic portrait of, you know, a, a yeah. one of those journeys for me anyway. Yeah. I think, um, it, I, this time was the first time that I paid attention to the fact that Dorothy is 26. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and, you know, plays twice, 26 year old. Um, and I do, like, I do think that has played into my, like, rethinking about the movie and that, like, her approach to love was may- maybe a little bit, like, mm, aspirational. I don't want to say less mature, like, sure. there's no, wh- whatever, but, like, I think, a 26 year old would totally quit their job yeah, <laughs> and right. yeah, yeah, like yeah. follow a man who they actually are super attracted to, but like are like, Oh, your memo. <laughs> like, yeah, that's right. great. <laughs> like may- maybe I would have done that as a 26 year old. Um, I wouldn't do that now, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that, that, that like age thing, I was like, Oh, this, this behavior okay. mm. makes more sense now that I know her age and yeah. I'm older than her in terms of what she was playing at that time. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So like, it also matters to that sort of like that aspirational nature of Dorothy's character that Ray's father, we are given to know died. Right. Their relationship. Like she mentions that he didn't treat her that nicely. I we're like, that's as much detail as we are given on that, but she did not break up with this person. He died. And so like, that's, 
that's like that comes obviously with its own trauma, but it's not the kind of experience that would make one, you know, that would give one Laurel's perspective on all these red flaggy characteristics that Jerry has. And there are significant ones. He comes over drunk. He feels like Clarence Thomas in that wonderful line. Uh, all, all that stuff like would lead you to, but, and yet like she is, she's willing to look past I mean, I think that, I think (laughs) I've been guilty of it. Like, I think, I think that their women are socialized sometimes into thinking that one just being like optimists, right. About men, um, in that, like, Oh, if they just had a woman in their life, <laughs> I can fix them. Um, yeah, we'll fix them. Well, like they won't be like this. It's just that they live on their own, so they're super self-centered and like whatever. Um, but but they'll change, right? Like we have this belief that things will change, um, and I think that this t- that totally played out in here, right? Sure, like she, exactly. I, I do think she thought he would be different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about this movie in terms of it being a romantic comedy to some extent is that we get to it's we don't get the usual thing, which is like some external impediment arises that like they have to sort of like work around and get through or even like, you know, somebody they one of them has to learn a lesson about themselves before they can be sort of worthy of the other. Like we watch the relationship deteriorate into a marriage in the pejorative sense in which like they're sort of leading separate lives. They're sort of trying to be connected, but like they also are like a, a drag on each other to a certain extent, or that's the way that they are, that they make one another feel uh, to some extent. And so like that, it requires not just a change in any one person, but a transformation of the relationship. So like, and we're invited to imagine that that fucking scene in the living room with the divorced women's group is that transformation. And I wonder, like, it's still like it still worked dramatically in the way that it did sort of like playing on my heartstrings now is in 1996. But like, as we're talking about, it, I'm like. I don't know, maybe, maybe like not even, maybe transformation isn't what was really required. It's as though like he just, he put, he did the thing that he said that he was going to do and like put relationships over his job, sort of, even though it didn't really require him to sacrifice very much because he, he, whatever the contract was forthcoming and whatever at that point. And he went back to sort of be with, his wife and she in that iconic, you had me at hello uh, line wasn't necessarily looking for anything more than that. Just, just the, like the actual decision to come be with her. So that's less. And again, again, I'm parroting this Shakespeare dissertation. That's less like going through something and transforming than it is to sort of enacting a return to the original conditions in which you fell in love in the first place as a way of maintaining. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think that, I think I really, I mean, I, I do think I really love 
the movie, but like the love story to me is too fast. Like the, the time exactly. frame is yes. way right. like, like this time when I was watching it, I was like, this is just a, a marriage of convenience, for, like that I don't really understand the convenience, but like it was like neither of them wanted to get it didn't feel like to me either of them right. wanted to get married. They both felt this obligation to do so. And it was seemed very quick. Um, and then it was like, oh, now that we're married, like we should talk about what it means to be a couple. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like it was like backwards. I mean, that whole scene in which like Laurel is looking out the window, he's like, she's going to take the job in San Diego. It, like it was much darker on the rewatch. Like, Mm-hmm. Jerry Maguire as a character is significantly more selfish and significantly more yeah. desperate than I remembered him being. The yeah. I, like he knows it's bad. It, it, he knows what he is doing is offering a false hope that he's offering. He doesn't believe in himself. He's desperate to cling to something, and he's like, he's like, I know that she's doing the right thing for her, but I'm going to propose to her behind this U-Haul in a very sort of flippant way because I can't be alone. That is the thing that like comes up in all of his exes and all that kind of stuff. It's not like that's the thing that sort of needed to transform. And I'm not positive that it did, but so like watching him, that was harder to watch for me. That scene of him being like, Laurel knows what's right. She's the voice of reason. Renee Zellweger's character has come around to seeing things that way, but we also know how attracted she is to Jerry Maguire, like the actual person and the aspirational person. And so we know that if he promises her this, she'll go for it. And he knows that too. And watching him be sort of unable to resist making this offer that he doesn't really want to or believe in was tough. I would agree. I'd agree. But I also like the, the scene where, um, Dorothy, you know, like it's where they essentially are like breaking up or whatever before Mm -hmm. he goes to Indy. And that whole like speech that they both sort of make right about like, um, you know, what, what do they each want? Right. And Jerry's like, do you want my soul? Yeah. (laughs) She's like, well, yeah, like I deserve that. And he's like, well, I like, I'm not built that way. And then she says that she's not built that way. And that like, he, she knows that he likes her a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, Right. But, and he just smiles, right. He doesn't say like, you're waiting for him to be like, no, I love you. Yeah. But she's like, I just know that this man likes me a whole lot. And there's just like a, yeah, I do. I do. And she's like, I'm not built that way. Like, right. Right. So like these things don't align in terms of what they, they need from each other or, and or want from each other. Um, in a way that like, I like, so like this man hasn't even said and won't say I, I love you, but like you just got married. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't make sense to me. (laughs) Um, so I think part, I mean, the part of Jerry, like being very cognizant that this is not appropriate. (laughs) Um, he doesn't love her. Right. Um, he knows what she wants and he knows that he's not it. Yeah. And yet, but I, yeah. And so for me, I think this, this lot, this time I watched it, I actually think that Ray plays such a huge component. Oh yeah. In this whole relationship. Dorothy falls in love with Jerry, I think. Yep. When he sees Ray give him a kiss on the cheek, yep. right? And then exactly. I, 
there's this, there's the scene like right that the Dorothy and Jerry are like in the bed and they're, they're kind of like trying to work through something where he's like, if you have a question about what I'm thinking, like just ask me. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and then, you know, Ray come jumps in and he jumps on the bed and him and Jerry, Jerry pulls him up to him and it's like sits in between his legs and they watch, they're watching TV and it's like, there's multiple times where you're like, oh, like Jerry, actually just loves Ray. Yeah. Or or like, you know, Which when Dorothy they when the breakup happens yeah. and he's like, what about like he's the one that says what about Ray? And he's like, I like I'll take him to the zoo, right? And like we're, we're still going to be I'll still have Ray in my life. And so I think he played such a prominent role in their relationship that that and I don't think any either of them really acknowledged it. No, it's only it's only Dorothy in that speech in which she says you like me a lot and you really love my kid. You know, that's, uh, that's the only, I, I mean, I thought that scene was really, was particularly well done, especially Jerry's silence on that. Like he doesn't say, the, it's not clear that Dorothy is really asking for confirmation or for him to say anything, but like, he's just confronted with the, He's confronted like with, you know, an actual limitation. Like she's just saying the truth about the limit of his affection for her. And he's like, and he's like, that's, that's right. So that's also the part that like makes that living room scene. So like Jerry has some sort of realization. Is it a realization that he loves Dorothy? I mean, that speech is great. Cameron Crowe can write a great speech. This is another of those things that like makes me so ambivalent about how attached to these movies that I am is that like, I, you know, can look back in my own life and be like, I have often thought that like, saying the right thing at the right time is like 90% of, of, of getting it right. Uh, so like he's, yeah, yeah, that's all. I don't know. Like when he comes back in and says like that, he's looking for his wife. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I don't know. I didn't really think about that. If he like comes to realize that he does love her or if it's just this like acceptance of like, that that is his wife like you know whatever Factually, yeah. <laughs> they got married um i, mean, I don't he, know in the speech he's like he's like i you know we had a big night i was experiencing all the success and it wasn't complete because i couldn't share it with you i'm like okay like that is verbal testimony to this kind of transformation you complete me blah 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 so like yeah that's yeah yeah, I don't know because I don't. I don't see. I didn't have any hope that the one thing that she pointed out in that speech, right, and he did too, right, was that like he wasn't willing to give his soul to her, yeah. um, right, and yes, and like I, I connect with that for sure, sure. Where it's just like, okay, like I'm a multifaceted person, and I'm not just gonna like hand my entire being over to you. I think what, uh, <laughs> um. But in that last scene, like I didn't, I didn't get the sense that he was like, yes, like you have all of me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just like a, like, okay, like I miss you or like I want to share life with you. Um, and, and Ray. Um, so I think maybe yeah. it was a little bit more like advanced in that at that time, a lot of movies portrayed marriage in a very specific way. Yeah. Um, and this was like an alternate view of what marriage could be. Sure. It was like, you know, it's not like you are my destiny or whatever it mm -hmm. is. It is like that speech comes out of like, a, 
you, whatever. Yeah, I missed you essentially there. I literally like there was a piece of me missing from that experience and you are that piece that doesn't say a lot about like what the actual commitment looks like or how one views love or or any of that stuff. But it, maybe maybe it doesn't maybe it also doesn't need to for like this moment in this particular movie. They're looking to sort of recalibrate with respect to one another. Maybe it is enough that Jerry Maguire is is like recognizes some limit to his self-sufficiency, which has always been like, I mean, that also comes up in that speech. He talks about like, I used to be the master of the living room or whatever, because I could get people to do what I want. Yeah, it, it ultimately like how that scene reads now is 100% related to like whether you whether you think he's just essentially being manipulative there too, or whether he's confessing something authentic and the whole thing about his character is that it's not clear that he knows the difference between those two things. And so like, you can't trust his own sincerity about, uh, these matters. It, yeah. Yeah. But he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't say love the entire movie. And like one of Dorothy's like biggest lines is the, I love, I love him line, right. Where she, he's talking to Laurel and he, he can hear it all. And he hears, her confess her love for him to Laurel and he doesn't recite like could you like that seems like when he walked in you know he he's silent again yep. right he yeah. gives her a kiss and then walks away but he there was no reciprocation at all yeah um where like in most movies that would happen and the guy would come in right and be like oh like I love you too whatever um, but it didn't happen. He never, he never uses the word love at all in the whole movie. I don't think that's correct. He uses the word Quan at one point, which Rod <laughs> Tidwell gets, uh, very upset about it. Like that is exactly, that is exactly right. And really astute. The idea that like, you know, you're absolutely right to focus on the fact that like, Comedies do often have these scenes of overhearing in which or direct confession in which one person will say it and the other person won't or one person is in possession of knowledge that the other person has or maybe as in fucking a Midsummer Night's Dream. Nope. Much ado about nothing. Both characters have said it to each other, but when they have to say it publicly, they deny that they feel that way. And like there's all this like there's so many ways in which this moment of sort of. uh of each character getting what they want and exp and you know making themselves vulnerable in this way is frustrated. It is really striking that he doesn't ever use it. That the best he gets is like you complete me. And maybe that's. I mean, I definitely believed in 1996 that that was better than uh, <laughs> saying I love you. But like, I don't know, man. I don't know. Like, she has specifically, if we want to talk about like love languages and whatever, she has made it known that here is the thing that she needs, and that is the thing that he finds a way around giving her which is odd which is just an odd choice for like a romantic comedy of this kind yeah i think i think so but like i like even if you we go back to his first girlfriend right and like just think oh about God, like so his past yeah um and like what he has experienced and you know like that was that was a marriage of convenience or not a marriage a relationship An of engagement convenience, of convenience yeah. mm -hmm. um it was and that was like that was portrayed in the movie as like the highest kind of aspiration i mean like 
we were talking about like 90s feminism and stuff. And Cameron Crowe is not the right place to go for like feminism in general, but like uh, the divorced women's circle. But here we have Avery is the character's name, I think. Kelly Preston's character. Like here we have like a new version of a professional go-getter woman who has who how to describe this character in like the very short time that we interact with her yeah i mean it's just the the part that does i mean is frustrating as a woman right like is she strong she yeah like is a leader like and seems to have sort of the control in the relationship Uh right like she because she's the one that ends it with him she's like right Yes, she does. Yeah. But then, but then like in an instant, right? Like things, didn't things like shift and all of a sudden she was like begging. Um, wait. Do I remember? Is that? There's, there's a scene where she's like, maybe it's, maybe it's before they break up. Um, where she like becomes very vulnerable. Like she is out of her character as this like strong woman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I I read that as like her manipulating him. Like that's what the quick switch is about. She's trying to Mm -hmm. sort of like. Yes, totally. She's protecting her investment in a, in a, in a way like being a kind of being the kind of foil to him that he needs in that time so that he can become the man that she thought she was with essentially not a loser. As she said, it's really like her, like she is professional. She is like, traditionally like hot in a traditional sense she's like hypersexual or this is what we know of her character and very comfortable with her uh, sexuality she is physically aggressive and dominant like it's a really like again really 90s portrait of like what the new woman could be like and and it it is all like it is basically like women can now share the same shitty traits that like are traditionally masculine or traditionally coded (laughs) as masculine. So wonderful everybody. And like can treat their partners badly and whatever it's that was, that was odd. I, again, I think we have had this conversation via text as well, but like I definitely, when I was 17 was invited to be like, you know, the kind of sex that Avery and Tom Cruise are having is the kind of sex that one should want to have like for their whole, like this is the peak kind of experience. And looking back on that, I'm like, not only is like the contrast between what happens, what happens sexually between Jerry and Dorothy and Jerry and Avery so much more remarkable, but also I'm like, you know, being like, oh, I see. I misunderstood this <laughs> when I was 17, <laughs> basically. Oh. Yeah, but I do – well, and I do think that, like, there are – it does invite this contrast between, um, you know, those two those two relationships. And it, and it paints – it paints Dorothy's sort of, like, meek, like, approach to relationships where the man takes the lead as, like, that – that's – more ideal type of relationship. Yeah, yeah. I really, like, I credit the movie that, like, the the time that Dorothy and Jerry end up getting into bed first is really wonderfully well done. Cameron Crowe, I still think, whatever other problematicness lurks beneath the surface, he does wonderful sex scenes. And I, by wonderful sex scenes, I don't mean sort of like, you know, 
pornographic. Like not me, Joe Black. Yeah, that, no, meet Joe Black is a wonderful sex thing. But like, especially his like portrayal of two people who are vulnerable with each other. This is also the case in Say Anything, where Lloyd Dobler and Ioni Skye's character end up having sex in the back seat, and it's like a really nice, lovely portrait of how terrifying it is to be intimate with another person when you're sort of that young. Like when the whole, I'm not even talking about like when Jerry Maguire and uh, Dorothy end up having sex, but like the whole thing on the porch where he breaks her dress by accident. It's really fucking sweet. It's really sort of like, I don't know. The good sex scenes are ones in which the characters are really attuned to each other and clearly having fun with each other and the amount of laughing again that happens in uh in bed as they're like what is this music that chad the nanny has given to us <laughs> uh is really is really outstanding like that is mm-hmm. that was the sex that we should have been aspiring to all along it turns out <laughs> yeah yeah i think so <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah that scene on the porch um Number one, I'm okay. <laughs> the so they're kissing, and then he like undoes the dress. No, the, the dress shawl, breaks. She snaps. Yeah, he snaps exactly, the, yeah. the the strap. thing. Yeah, which is you know playful, whatever. And then it breaks, and then he's kissing her, and then like the, I mean the camera is like very much focused on her, right? And yes, her yes. Um, facial expressions and emotions to what's going on. So my question is. Does does he like go like for like not really go down on her, but he go like does go down on her? Like I feel like there's a moment where I'm just yeah, like they're like, like on the front disappears. porch. <laughs> exactly. I had that same thought. I'm like the porch light is on, you guys. This is like a residential neighborhood. What are you doing? He literally that like it, it is exactly that. The frame is okay. like capturing both of them like. Like he fixes the strap, whatever, and then like kisses down her chest over her skin, and like she's clearly wearing a dress. The camera is like waist up on both of them and his head disappears from view and her head does like that chin tilt up thing. I'm like, what is happening off camera? <laughs> How is this possible? Isn't Ray right inside? Is Ray really asleep? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure I didn't miss something. No, so I like, totally a, are we that. supposed that to assume that he's like, I mean, teasing her doing something like, yeah, exactly. down there and like her dress is lifted up and. They're on the front porch in a residential neighborhood. <laughs> Laurel is waiting for them to get inside. Still, at like, okay. very, very um, yes. Thank you for reminding me of that. Very odd. Uh, yeah, that was definitely not believable. <laughs> no, no, surely not. We no, know that, but like, the best line of the movie is in that scene. For sure. And I did not pick it up until this time that I watched it. Clearly, like I was 12 when I first watched the movie. So I was just like, oh, she wants him to come inside. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> That's nice. Maybe it's raining out or a little yeah. cold. She wants to provide him. But I literally like stopped and rewound it and was just like, wait a minute. <laughs> like that was brilliant. Like that was one of those brilliant signs or brilliant um, lines when she's like, you know, you should you should probably not come in. Right. Or come in. <laughs> and he's like you too or something and yes. she's like no i, I have to go in <laughs> i was just like this, this was so good like that's one of the best lines that i've seen in a long time yes absolutely oh man so how insane the same scene can simultaneously include these like this great like line of kissman and also this like weird like you know descending head <laughs> 
Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it's a good scene now. <laughs> I had completely forgotten that Chad the nanny eventually ends up playing Dick. I think it's his name in High Fidelity. Like four oh, years yeah. later, I was like, "Oh, how interesting!" Here's this character who is sort of, uh, you know, coded as less than fully masculine who's also really into music. I'm like, did they just, did, did somebody watch Jerry Maguire and was like, here's who we have to get for like, not John Cusack and not Jack Black, but, but yeah. this guy for sure. Yeah. He's also yeah. excellent in that movie. He's, I forgot how, like, again, when I was a teenager, his character didn't read as sort of over the top as it does now. I'm like, what is his obsession with jazz? Like, why is that <laughs> the only thing that he cares about? And Whatever. I did love the scene in which, like, I remember this, like, it played the same now as as when I originally saw it. The idea that he's like, hey, I have to give you something if you're going to do this. Like, he's got this weird protective thing about Dorothy, too. And I'm like, and Jerry Maguire totally reacts as though he's going to pull out a condom. That's how, and I'm like, I'm like, in the rewatch, I was like, I I remember that this is going to go sideways. Like, something is going to happen, but I don't remember what it is. Oh, that's right. It's the jazz stage. He's actually just such a like a great character in this movie. Um and like I feel like kind of like a brother character to her, right? And that he's he is he's like protective of her and has this weird quirk about jazz music, but like clearly like loves Ray. I don't know, like it, it's and, and that's the other thing too, is like I feel like Jerry's coming in right on his relationship right. with Ray. I mean, that's that's a really interesting thing. Like, Dorothy is all like, I've never seen him kiss another man. I'm like, what is Ray's relationship like to Chad the nanny? Like, they spend a lot of time together. Does Ray, like, is he just not a sexual object for Dorothy? Like, is he not the right kind of, like, that, that's a really fucking big question that the movie does not even get into, I feel like. Is he just the one hanging out on the couch while Ray sleeps? Like, is that... But he's a nanny. Like he is he the child care? Like while she is at work? Like that's a Yeah, a, I don't he, I don't know. He's described as the nanny. He hates that in exactly the same way that Jerry describes, like hates having his thing be called a memo. And he would prefer to be called an au pair. I'm like, wait, does he live with them? How much money <laughs> is this accountant making or whatever? Right. Well, and he doesn't because like at the very beginning when the first scene of the divorced women's group and she's she like can't find Ray and Laurel's like he's in sleeping on the floor with the divorced women right and she goes in and like get like the yeah right the nanny oh is God. not there. <laughs> like, I mean that's also kind of fucked up like that just that line in general like she's she's terrified of what Ray's exposure to the divorced yeah. women is going to do to Ray and I'm like that's weird that's weird right mm-hmm. yeah yes for sure my God. <laughs> All right, so on the rewatch, what is, I mean, we've already talked about the porch scene. What is the part of the movie that you had forgotten, favorite moment, favorite line from the film? What did you notice this time that you hadn't noticed the first time? Favorite character, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, what did I, the, the porch scene definitely was the number one. Um, I think I, um, I didn't notice as much um, until now the um, Rod Tidwell's brother. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I was just like, okay, this is this is a, a fun character. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think. 
what else I noticed? Um, I noticed the music was really great. Oh, uh, we have not <laughs> talked about that at all. Like, that's like, I, I did not realize when I saw this movie the first time that it was a Cameron Crowe movie. And I didn't associate Cameron Crowe at this point with like incredible soundtrack design. Like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Elizabeth town with Orlando Bloom and Kirsten Dunst. I feel like I saw like it got just shredded critically. Like it was people, people hated that movie it was too long, whatever. But like that soundtrack remains a favorite uh, for me. And sim- like almost famous, obviously is incredible in that regard. So this time when I was rewatching it, I'm like, there's that scene where Jerry Maguire is in the car trying to f- flip around through a radio station and free falling comes on. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's why Tom Petty was such a big deal when I was like 16 and 17 out of sort of like, I realized that he was still like a big hit maker and whatever. And whatever that album that he had, that he came out with featuring, uh, the song Mary last chance, last dance with Mary Jane, just Mary Mm -hmm. Jane came out right around that time. But like free falling was like a song that I remember being everywhere when I was like 16. I'm like, this is why that's why it was everywhere. Yeah. 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 No, there's, there's such good one. And they're, they're all, um, like ballads. Yeah. Like a lot, you know, like the Bruce Springsteen song and the Who and Bob Dylan. Like they're all like these sort of like ballad songs that I like just totally forgot about. (laughs) I also forgot that this was like, this was an era in which Bruce Springsteen was, was making ballads of that mm-hmm. particular kind that were going in movies. W- was Human Touch in Philadelphia? No, Streets of Philadelphia was in Philadelphia. Yeah, Streets of Philadelphia <laughs> was in Philadelphia. <laughs> Whatever. But there yeah. were like a ton of songs that were like that. We were mm-hmm. like top 40 hits. Yeah. 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 Totally. Um, so I think, yeah, I think the the soundtrack stood out to me a lot where I was like, man, there are some bangers on here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, right. It's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's it. What about you? Regina King, for sure. As like... Uh, Rod Tidwell's wife, Marcy. Yeah, like she so is good. so young in this movie. She was like 25 when this movie was made, and she crushes it. Like she's she's been great in everything that she's done. I didn't realize that it was her in this movie, but especially like when uh Rod's brother is being like, here's what I would have done as he's lying on the yes, field, like that unconscious. seems so good. It's really good. Like she when she is like when she's trying to tell him to shut up and she just loses her mind on him, I'm like, that's that. That was incredible and incredibly believable. Also, like, thanks for bringing up his brother as well. It's like he has that line at the end. He's like, you're militant, but I love you. And we're supposed to believe that, like, this is what this is what what black power politics looks like, sort of. It's like random sort of like, I don't know, critique and T-shirts or whatever. And yet this is very distinct from whatever Rod Tidwell is doing in his persona as like trying to get paid receiver. I'm like, this is odd. There's some like, I mean, in this is not the point of the movie. This is not what Cameron Crowe is paying attention to, but it's odd that it's in here. There's weird race stuff all throughout in like, you know, the whatever, Bo Bridges is Cushman's dad's character being like giving his job to or signing with Bob Sugar because uh, Jerry Maguire was paying attention to the black fella, quote unquote, is like that was pretty over the top and intense as though Cushman has never played with black players before or whatever, or whatever. Yeah. It was just. Yeah, no, there was definitely some some bad racial parts to the to that. Yeah. But that, yeah, 
that like, yeah. Yeah. No, the wife, the wife is fantastic. And, and just like the, the, that's like the love story that like, yes. Also like no one pays pays attention to. Right. right? But like, that's really the love story, right? That's like what love is supposed to. And Jerry says that he's at one point, right. Doesn't he say something about how like this is like, this is what I should be aspiring to. (laughs) Yeah. That I, I think that that is such a huge point that you have just made that like, I mean, we've been talking about it for this whole podcast. What the movie is inviting us to pay attention to is the Dorothy Jerry Maguire love story. But if you want like an actual model of like long lasting, even marital love, that's the one. It's just like shared decision making, doing stuff for one another and with one another. That's like what that's that's the goal. Yeah, and, it's, and I think it like just is this juxtaposition around how they frame Rod Tidwell as a self-centered, me, yes. me, me type yes, of person. Yes, yes. But like, if you actually look at his marriage, like, it is sort of the, you know, like gold standard in terms of him putting her first, yeah. um, or at least like them being sort of this shared decision-making process. I mean, and if you look at the difference between the way that Rod Tittle is asking for money when he's talking f- to Jerry privately about his motivations and when he's sort of uh, making noise in the general direction of the organization, when he's talking about in the organization, he's talking about like, I've been in Arizona, I've given so much, I deserve this. But when he's talking to Jerry, he's like, this next contract is going to be my last. This one has to set, set my family up for yes. the rest. Like, he's like, this is why I need this to go this way. It's not about pay me what I'm worth exactly. Although that certainly plays into it. He definitely doesn't want to be lowballed, but there's a really specific reason that is tied to his family's well-being that he's not willing to tolerate being lowballed. He'd like to do it in Arizona because he does deserve, uh, or he has put in the, um, he's got his fucking sweat equity, uh, in Arizona. And so they ought to pay him the money. But the real reason that he wants the money is not to make as much as humanly possible, but. set his family up. And the, and the fact that, like how how many NFL players are place bound? Yeah, like, exactly. And to me, right. like they're place bound because his family is there, yeah, like exactly. his wife, and, and that's where they live, right? And like how many NFL players are actually like, no, I'm only staying in Phoenix or whatever. Very ironically, uh, I don't know if you saw this uh, report. I feel like the Athletic did something on it at the end of the season. The Arizona Cardinals were at the very bottom of the NFL in terms of like they just do this anonymous players survey of like, where do you like to play more? Like whose organization is best? All that kind of stuff. Uh, and in terms of like the quality of the Arizona or the quality of the organization, the Cardinals routinely rank or have recently ranked at the very lowest, especially when it comes to players' families. Like, other organizations will like set aside seats and like make space in the locker mm-hmm. room for uh, players, families, members, and whatever. Uh, the Cardinals just have nothing, no daycare, no nothing. So like, it's oh, wow. fascinating. It's that's, that's an interesting thing to know, you know, 30 years after this uh, movie comes out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it all started here. That's all that I'm saying. Jerry Maguire was the first to tip us off to the shittiness <laughs> of the Arizona Cardinals organization. <laughs> We should have known. We We should should have known. And that's our show. Thanks, Rachel, for spending another afternoon doing the kind of intellectual work that you can't put on a CV. For you, our listeners, subscribe to the show wherever you're listening and do leave us a rating and a review, which helps people find us. 
We'll be back in no time at all with Winston and Andy talking about the John Travolta, Gene Hackman, and Danny DeVito classic, Get Shorty. Until then, for all of us here at the Point 10 Podcast, I'm Derek Gottlieb. We will see you next time.